Welcome to the Womb Wisdom Podcast. My name is Holly Deaver, and I'm the owner and operator of Rosebud Wellness, where I practice women's holistic health, utilizing acupuncture, Chinese herbalism, yoni steaming, Arvigo abdominal massage, and the fertility awareness method. This podcast will be part conversations with women who are mothers or hope to be mothers on their journey through menstruation, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood, and part information about the holistic health practices that I use in my practice. Please enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. If you are interested in learning more about the fertility awareness method, or if you don't know what I'm talking about and you would like to know what I'm talking about, then I have just the resource for you. I recently released a three-part video series that is completely free, and in that video series, I talk about what the fertility awareness method is. So essentially, it involves tracking and charting your three main fertile signs, which include basal body temperature, cervical mucus, and cervical position, which is an optional sign. So in the video series, I talk a little bit about how to track and chart each of those signs and what some of those signs can reveal to you in terms of your goals for for your fertility if you are calling in a pregnancy if you're avoiding pregnancy if you are simply using this method to assess your overall health we also talk about the cycle parameters and what we are looking at in terms of what's optimal for a healthy cycle then we talk about the applications of the fertility awareness method. So in terms of optimizing your chances of conception, if you're someone that's wanting to get pregnant, we talk about timing sex appropriately so that you are having sex when you're actually fertile. If you believe that you're fertile every single day of the cycle, then you are definitely going to want to check out this video series because that is not true. The fertility awareness method can also be used to optimize your cycle. So we're looking at all of these parameters and then from there, making tweaks to nutrition, potentially lifestyle, sleep, supplementation, all sorts of things to optimize your cycle so that uh, pregnancy is more possible. It can also be used to avoid pregnancy without the use of synthetic hormones or devices. And basically the reason that it can be used for achieving and avoiding pregnancy is because you make different decisions during your fertile window, depending on what your goals are. So either way, you're identifying when you're fertile and when you're not. And then the way that you're engaging sexually will change based on your goals and your intentions, as well as the goals and intentions of your partner. Uh, the fertility awareness method can also be used to assess your overall health or identify any underlying health conditions, things like your metabolism, cervical issues, endocrine issues, things like PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, endometriosis, all sorts of things can be revealed by tracking and charting your cycle. So it is a really essential piece of information, I think, for all people that menstruate and that have uteruses or uteri. So I would love to see you in my free video series and you can find it on my Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness. And it is linked in my bio there. It's often linked in my stories as well. If you have any trouble finding it, send me a message at rosebud underscore wellness. Welcome back everyone to the womb wisdom podcast. I am here today with Rachel Cappuccino and she is a pelvic PT in Thousand Oaks, which is where I live. So she is my pelvic PT and she's also a mom of two kiddos. So welcome to you, Rachel. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it was a long time ago that we first chatted about you coming on. So I'm yeah. glad it's finally happening. I know me too. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So um, we can start off where I always start off with talking about your first period, which we kind of already talked about a little bit. So it sounds like a really interesting story. Um, I don't know how you would define it now, but yeah, you can share yeah. about that. Okay. So I was 12 and I was at a soccer tournament. So I grew up playing soccer and, or I think I had gone home in between games or something and I went to the bathroom and I saw blood and I was like, Hmm, 
So then of course I go in and get my mom and it was like, um, I think I got my period or something like that. And she was like, oh, let me see. And she looked, she was like, oh yeah. And so then she gave me this like really heavy pad because that's all she had. And then I had to wear this really heavy pad during my soccer tournament. It was very uncomfortable. Um, that's pretty much all I remember of it. So just being really uncomfortable at the soccer tournament for that whole weekend. And then um, I think eventually we got me smaller pads. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so at 12, you already knew what a period was. Yeah, I think so. I didn't have, I went to Catholic school my whole life, so I didn't have a ton of like sex ed or anything like that, but I think from friends mostly, I don't, I don't exactly remember how I knew what it was, but I knew what it was. So yeah. And your parents didn't ever have like the talk with you. No, not until I was 25. <laughs> My parents still never had the talk. Yeah. And it's so funny because it's like movies and shows. There's like, oh, it's like, you know, talking about the birds and the bees and yeah. the sex talk and stuff that yeah. like, I don't really know anybody that had that. Yeah. To do that. Well, and especially in a Catholic family, it's oh, just yeah. like, no sex, nothing. Yeah. No. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's yeah. Okay, great. Great. <laughs> moving on yeah um so then did you ever go on birth control for any reason yeah, so when I was in college I went on birth control and I think I went on it for my acne at that point so I was pretty much on birth control from 20 to almost 30 when I was trying to get pregnant so about 10 years um I never really had any major issues I never had like painful periods or anything like that I was pretty regular since I was on birth control so I pretty much knew when um, my period was coming. Um, I think like maybe once or twice I had really intense cramps for some reason, but nothing major. Um, and then I went off of it, I think like right before I turned 30, cause that's when I, we wanted to try and start conceiving. So, yeah. So uh, one thing that just popped into my head, especially because you're a pelvic PT yes. is that I have historically always had painful sex, not always, but like gone through a lot of phases of my life. And I was just doing a live recording with someone. It was totally unrelated, but I was just reflecting on my experience of having been on hormonal birth control. And I started birth control before, like shortly before I started having sex. And it was painful from the beginning and then stayed painful for the entire time that I was on hormonal birth control. And I attribute that to, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but hormonal birth control can like shrink the size of your vaginal opening. And then it also causes your tissues to atrophy and reduces the amount of lubrication that you produce. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. That all makes sense. So, and I think if, so what I was saying in the live is like, I don't think that that happens to everyone, but I, maybe my system is just different or sensitive or whatever, but have you experienced that, you know, we're going to talk more about the work that you do as we go. But I, since we're talking about birth control, I just thought it would be interesting to, if you've ever noticed a correlation of like women coming for, I don't know, I, I don't know, like vaginismus, vulvodynia, like anything like that, that you think maybe is related to them being on hormonal birth control? That's an interesting question. And I'm going to have to say, I personally have not seen that in my practice since my practice mostly focuses on pregnancy and postpartum. So Mm. most people that I see are not on birth control because they're either like very newly postpartum or they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean to say that that's not true because what you said makes perfect sense. I just haven't seen it in my practice, but yeah. And you didn't experience that personally. Correct. No, I, I fortunately have not had any pain with sex issues. So um, I have not experienced that personally. Did you find that you had a libido while you were taking it? I did. Yes. I don't feel like it decreased my sex drive at all. So um, yeah, I don't know if maybe I was just on a lower dose or anything or just, yeah, nothing. I I mean, I think there's a lot of variability in how it affects people too. Like some women will say like, I had like all of these like horrible, whether right. it's like physical or emotional symptoms. And yeah. mine was more subtle than that, right. I guess. And yeah. it sounds like yours was just like imperceptible, really. It was, yeah, mine was pretty, it was pretty good. But now postpartum, my birth control has been very annoying. And I'm actually going to go off the pill in a couple of weeks because I've just been like bleeding every two weeks, which is very annoying. So um, I to have decided now I don't want to be on the pill. So, but for the, is, ten- it the, is it the same pill that you were on previously? No, I don't think so. So I think actually in college, 
and throughout college I was on I think it was Yaz or like the generic version of Yaz and I know there's a lot of like yeah and everything there but again fortunately nothing bad has happened to me um now I'm on a low low estrogen low estrogen low low estrogen I think that's the name of the pill um and they told me that we could bump it up to a higher dose to stop the bleeding but I just I don't know I feel right now I feel like something is off and maybe now because I'm more aware of my body since I'm pelvic floor PT and I've had two babies and like it just doesn't feel right this time around it was totally fine when I was in my 20s and like definitely not wanting to have a baby not that I want to have another baby now but yeah I I just don't want to be on it anymore so yeah I mean I also think that getting to a certain level, like maturity level that you are a little bit more like, I think that this, you know, tracking and charting my cycle, like trying to do that in college when everybody else oh, is being crazy, it's just like, no way There's it, it no depends way. on the person. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I very much relate to that. Like I'm bummed about my birth control experience. Right. I wish I had been a stronger advocate for condoms at the time, but well, and it's also like, you don't know, especially if you don't have the sex education, like for me coming from Catholic school, like I don't think I knew what a condom was for a long time. And yeah, so it's more education is necessary. Like we need to know. And I also in college probably didn't know what ovulation was. I didn't know that there was really not a very long window that you can get pregnant. I didn't know that in college. Um, but now knowing what I know, I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay. So, you know, they like scare you, like you're going to get pregnant all the time. Like, no, but obviously you have to be careful. So, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I can just really relate to that. And I didn't know that in college either. I didn't know that until, I don't know, under 10 years ago for sure. Yeah. Right. Until I was trying to conceive and I was like, okay, how do we do this? Like, what am I supposed to do? How do I get pregnant? You know, like what is timing? That's probably when I learned what ovulation was. So, well, uh, since you just started talking about that, let's go there. Um, so let's talk about when you, you stopped taking birth control and then where do we go from there? Like, did you start trying to conceive right away or did you give it some time? Yeah. So I stopped taking birth control probably like a couple months before I turned 30. Cause for some reason in my head, I was always like, I want to wait until I'm 30 to have kids. I'm not just random number. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when I stopped, when I went off the pill, we weren't actively trying, but we weren't doing anything to prevent it. Cause we were like, okay, you know, like if it happens, that's great. Cause we're married, like good, we're ready to go. Um, so then, but once I turned 30, that's when we started trying. And I feel like the first couple months I did not do the peeing on the stick. I didn't do the ovulation predictor kits. Um, but then I think after like three months when it wasn't working, I was like, okay, let's start doing that. And that's really the only thing that I did. I think I like looked at my cervical mucus, but I wasn't like, I didn't, wasn't doing any charting or anything. So I was really just going by the app, the pre-mom app is what I use. And I use those ovulation sticks. Um, and so we did that for about a year and nothing happened. So then we decided we went to, you know, we got, um, we went to see a reproductive endocrinologist and they told it, they did all the tests on me. They did tests on my husband and everything came back normal. They, you know, there was nothing definitive that was like, yes, this is why you cannot get pregnant. They were just like, okay, well it's unexplained infertility. So we can try and do IVF and you should be successful. So that's what we ended up doing with my son. So he's an IVF baby. Um, and yeah, so that's the first, that was my first pregnancy. Um, I know you think you want to talk me to talk about IVF a little bit. Yes, I do. And I mean, I've walked with many women through like in the context of acupuncture. Yes. Mostly some people come for the abdominal massage too, like at certain times in their IVF journey. So I, and I've known many women that have gone through it kind of several times. So I'm just anything. Well, first of all, I just want to say that for if you had stopped, okay, you stopped taking birth control. You'd been trying for three months and yeah. then you did IVF. No, we, we had been trying for a year. A year. So okay. Three months is when I started doing the ov- peeing on the stick. Doing Got the it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it, just to throw it out there in general, when people stop taking birth control, I tend to recommend 18 months to two years oh, really? for their body to like get back into balance before oh, wow. they start trying to conceive. Interesting. I mean, no one knows that. 
No, so I just, I'm saying that purely for the listener. Okay, <laughs> if anybody's thinking like, I kind of want to come off birth control. Yeah. But I mean, my mom, I, I've told this story before. She came off birth control and like immediately got pregnant with yeah, my and sister. I've, I've, so yeah, I've heard people say that too. Yeah. So, that, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that, and what we, I think that I remember talking about yesterday about the sperm quality situation, Right. Yeah. that there is like a normal range for the parameters that they look at and it's slowly going yes. down what's yeah. considered normal so that right. more men can fit into the normal range, which they actually do for like a lot of labs and like right. different uh, lab ranges for certain things that they're looking at. They're just like kind of moving it down so that more people fit into the normal range. I really have no idea why exactly they would be doing that. Maybe. And I think for IVF, like maybe he would have, his sperm would have to be like at a certain level or something in order for them to do. I don't know. So it's so interesting. And it's interesting you say that too, because I know a lot more people now that are having to go through IVF. Like it's crazy how many people I'm like, wow, this is becoming way more common. And like a lot more people are having trouble conceiving. So it's like, what, like overall globally, what's going on? Why can't we get pregnant? I mean, I know women are waiting until they're older and we're probably more stressed because we're working and we're trying to do all the things, but yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Like how many people are doing IVF now? Yeah. And sperm quality is a really, really big part of it. And I've seen maybe, I mean, I would say that my, I'm geared more towards working with women, but I very rarely would see the men even before I kind of was only working with women right? because I think the woman and, and it's not the fault of the man. It's that the doctors even are saying, well, this is a woman problem. Like there's gotta be something. And especially his sperm is normal. So there's a difference between normal and optimal. And it's the same thing with women's menstrual cycles too. It's like normal to have period pain, but is it optimal? No. So it's the same kind of idea with sperm quality. So anyway, if there's anything you want to share about like the process that you think would be kind of helpful for people to know about if they're kind of thinking they maybe need to embark on the IVF journey, like yeah. what it looked like for you and how yeah, definitely stages went. Um, so for us, fortunately, everything went well the first time, like we only had to do one egg retrieval, one transfer. It was successful. But um, if anyone is thinking about it, just know it is a ton of appointments, which is not a bad thing, but they do a lot of modern monitoring, which is really cool. So um, for me, so you, you call them on the first day of your period. And then I think let me see if I remember this correctly. So I went on, they had me go on birth control for like nine days. Um, and then after that, they bring you in, they check your ovaries and follicles and all those fun things. And for me, they found a cyst on my ovary, but then they did the blood work and the cyst was not producing hormones. So we were able to proceed, but had it been producing hormones, we would have had to wait another month or something. So, and again, this is where all the appointments come in. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, when they first told me that they're like, well, we have to wait until your blood work comes back. I was just like, oh, already. Like, I just want to, I just want to get pregnant. Like this is taking forever, but fortunately that was all fine. Um, okay. So then after I stopped taking birth control, then you do all of the, um, injections to overstimulate the ovaries. So it was two injections for four days and then three injections for five days. So it's, um, oh my gosh, the follicle stimulating hormone and, uh, menopause, I forget. Um, yeah, basically to stimulate the ovaries, to create lots of eggs. Um, and then the third shot comes in on the fifth day to prevent you from ovulating early because then, so that was, so it was nine days of stimulations. And then you go in for the monitoring, make sure that your follicles are growing and they count how many follicles are growing. And then I want to say it was day 11 is when we did the trigger shot to produce ovulation and you have to time it 12 hours or no, 36 hours, I think before I went in for the egg retrieval. So it's all like timing. You have to do the shots at the same time. Very, you got to be very precise and like set your alarms. And so I think we did our trigger shot. I think it was at 10 PM. It was supposed to be at 2 AM, but then fortunately my procedure got moved so we could do it at 10 PM and then go to sleep. Um, right. Right. I think it's 36 hours. I can't remember now. Um, but so then we, yeah, so we did the trigger shot and then you go into check to make sure that you ovulated and then, and then they do the egg retrieval. I think it was the following day. I can't remember anything. So my egg retrieval went well. They retrieved 19 eggs 
17 were mature, 15 fertilized, and then like, I forget, like 11 made it to day, no, we ended up with five normal embryos on day five. So and then did, on- did you do genetic testing? We did. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So we ended up with five embryos to, no, we ended up with eight embryos to send to genetic testing and then five came back normal. Yeah. That sounds right. Sorry. Cool. This was all- that's a lot that, so, I mean, yeah. compared to a lot of the people I've worked with. That's yeah. Really sure. numbers. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it was a good number. So we actually, we do still have four embryos um, frozen right now that we are. So did you, I, maybe this is a weird question, but did you know the gender of the? You did. Yes. Embryos? So yes. And so we picked a boy because my husband's family has all girls. Um, his brother has four girls and his sister has three girls. And so we, um, we're pretty much the only chance of carrying on the cappuccino family name. So that's why we picked a boy. Um, and then, yeah. So, but on ice, our embryos, we still have, um, two males and two females left. So, and we wanted to know the gender. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So that was that process. So this was, that was my retrieval was in October and then they had me wait, um, one cycle. So I got my period, like did that and then got my period again. And then that's when we started the transfer. Um, but I will say the period after my egg retrieval was the most painful period I've ever had probably from all the stims, obviously, but like I couldn't move. I had to take, I had to call in sick to work. I had to take I um, Advil and Tylenol together. You know, it was just, that was not fun. Um, but other than that, though, like the actual egg retrieval wasn't bad. My recovery from the egg retrieval wasn't bad. Like the whole process itself was fine. It was just that super painful period afterwards. Um, so that was October. So then we took the month of November off and then we did the transfer. Uh, I think it was December 5th of 2019. So this is all right before COVID too. So that was, Mm -hmm. we got it in right before then. Um, And the transfer was, it's much easier. So you start taking uh, oral estrogen and then um, suppository, uh, vaginal suppositories of progesterone. And then, um, then we started doing progesterone injections. I think it was a week before the actual transfer. So it was like mine were every three days. Some people have to do it every day. It just depends on your protocol and what your doctor suggests. So it was three days in one hip, three days on the other hip. My glutes were very sore after that. That was. Did you do it to yourself or did your husband? No, I had my husband do it. And then I would put the song, um, shots by little John on to like pump myself up. Like, cause I hate needles. (laughs) Yeah. That's so great. Whatever you should do, like to distract yourself. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, but fortunately he was really good and he did it all for me. Um, and then we did our transfer on December 5th. And then I think it was nine days later, I went in for the blood test and it was positive, but okay. So they told me that I could take a pregnancy test at home a week later if I wanted to. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm probably going to do that. Cause I needed to know, I just needed to know, but I actually decided to take one on day five post transfer. Cause I was like, I don't know. I just like have a feeling. And then I took it and it was like the faintest, faintest, faintest pink line, but it was there. And I was like, oh my God, I think it worked. So that was really exciting. Um, yeah. And then, so we went in for the blood test and it was, the numbers were great. And then I had the normal healthy pregnancy and Joseph was born in August of 2020. That's amazing. So anything you want to share about the pregnancy? Because when I've worked with people that have done some form of assistive reproductive technology, a lot of people or the doctors usually want to follow them a little bit more closely, particularly in the first trimester. Was that so with us, so we went to the, uh, the reproductive endocrinologist every week until week nine. And then I think like week 10 is when I went to the OB and, um, for me, they didn't have to do any like extra monitoring because everything looks really good. And then with my OB, it was appointments every, well, it's supposed to be every four weeks, but then, or with COVID, it was every eight weeks, but it's because the, um, the group that I go to, we have three ultrasounds with the maternal fetal medicine doctor. So those like kind of fell. So I was still kind of going like every month or every eight weeks. I can't remember now, but because it was COVID, I was, I saw my OB less than I think most people would, but so, everything. And was- the maternal fetal monitoring, do you you mean those like really extensive ultrasounds? Extensive ultrasounds. Kind of yeah, the 3D. And Is I did that a California standard thing to do. I'm not sure because I have friends who live in other states who said that they only got one ultrasound at 20 weeks. Yes. 
but also some of my friends here who don't go. So I, um, my OB, it's the UCLA group in Westlake. And so there's um, six uh, OBs and I'm pretty sure they send everybody for, even if it's not a high risk pregnancy, because I wasn't considered high risk, but it's just to like go and get everything checked out and make sure everything was looking good, which I really enjoyed. It was nice. It was like comforting peace of mind. Like, okay, here's, here's the heart, here's the brain here, you know, everything, which was cool. So I'm not sure if it's a California thing or if it's just like my particular OB practice or um, that I don't know. Well, part of the reason I ask is because when I started seeing an OB when I was pregnant, because it was like covered by my insurance, even though yeah. I knew I was going to have home birth, Right. but I lived in California at the time and she, I can't even remember the conversation, but she referred me to get those ultrasounds yeah. for each trimester. Right. And I did them and any, I don't know if you've ever heard about like the issues with ultrasounds and all that kind of stuff. But now I wish that I hadn't done that. And then, right. and then I reflected on it later. Like, why did she send me to so many? Right. And I was kind of like borderline, like high risk because I was 34. Right. And I thought that maybe it was because of that. But now I kind of think it's more of like a California maybe standard. Just- like if they're just being extra careful or something, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. And then, yeah, I have heard that stuff, like some things about ultrasounds not being good for the baby or something, but yeah, I liked it. It was good peace of mind. Both of my babies are okay. So I don't, I mean, I don't know, like so much research both ways. It's like, totally. Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. So for me, like everything turned out great. So, yeah. And I mean, it's so hard to go back to like, recalling the experience of being pregnant of like, there's so many unknowns, especially, I mean, I've only been pregnant once, but I imagine your first pregnancy is kind of probably one of the most overwhelming experiences of just like, is everything okay? Like there's no way to, to know. And we're so used to being able to like assess things and see what's happening. Um, so yeah, I, I think at the, I don't, I'm not like super sad about my decision to get those ultrasounds, but it just made me think like, yeah, just in, in like the larger context of right. like, is it necessary? Is it? Yeah. And, and like reward, you know, I could have asked her, right. like, do I, I need to do that? Yeah. But I yeah. didn't even know. I was just kind yeah. of like, I've yeah. never been pregnant before. And sure. like, I didn't really ask any, yeah. I thought it was just standard of care, yeah. like everywhere. Yeah. And then I'm from Connecticut. So I've talked with more people that live there and they're just like, yeah. oh, they, I had like one ultrasound my whole pregnancy kind of thing. Yeah, same. So There's yeah. Friends who are not in California. So yeah, super interesting. But that is yeah. it necessary question is a good one. Cause when I talk about delivering with Joseph, they did um, some interventions that back now I'm like, that was so not necessary. We didn't need to do that, but you don't know what you don't know your first pregnancy. So totally. Yeah. yeah actually let's talk about that. Um, so when did you go into labor naturally? Yeah. So with him, yeah. I went into labor naturally. So my pregnancy with, with him was pretty easy. My only issue was I had really bad acid reflux, which um, makes sense because he was born with a full head of hair. And apparently mm-hmm. that's a thing. I, I don't know. Sure not. But um, yeah. So I was actually scheduled to be induced on his due date was August 22nd. And then I was scheduled to be induced on August 27th but I actually went into labor on my own on August 26th. So that was great. Um, so I started having contractions at like 5 PM and they were actually like pretty close together right away. And I was at my parents' house having dinner and I was like, okay, I think I need to go home take shower. We need to go to the hospital because they were, um, I think they were, they were closer than five minutes apart, but they weren't long yet. So it wasn't like urgent, urgent, but it was like, okay, I think we should probably go. So, um, I think we got to the hospital around 8 PM and I was four centimeters dilated and, um, my contractions were still, they were fine. They were manageable, but I always knew that I wanted an epidural. So they told me that I was four centimeters and I could get the epidural. I was like, yep, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So got the epidural around 10 PM. Um, and if you go to the hospital and get an epidural from a pelvic floor physical therapist, lay on your side with a peanut ball. Cause that will help you dilate faster. So that's what I did. And I dilated in four hours, but so with the, if it's necessary things, so, um, like everything was going fine, but they came in twice. So at one point they came in and they were like, we can break your water to speed things along. Like, no, there there was like, everything was fine. There was no evidence that he was in fetal distress or like anything was wrong with me. They were just like, we can speed things along. And it's like, midnight and I'm like yeah sure let's speed things along let's get the show on the road but now obviously like knowing what I know I'm like that was completely not necessary but they so they broke my water and again like everything turned out fine but then 
after that, I think maybe like an hour later, I was still, I was like six, seven centimeters. They're like, her contractions are slowing down. So we can give you Pitocin to speed things along. And again, I was like, yeah, sure. Let's speed things along. Give me Pitocin. And again, now I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. It wasn't necessary, but all in all, it was fine. Um, but yeah. And then again, from like the public PT perspective, just ask if, is it really necessary? Um, if that's not something you're interested in, if you're in the hospital, if you don't want interventions, just if it's not necessary, then you don't have to do it. But I didn't know what I didn't know back then. So, well, and a lot of times they won't necessarily answer your question, you know, like, yeah, if you had said it's, you know, they can do like, well, your baby's going to die if you don't do it kind of things that are like, of course, any mother would be like, okay, then do whatever, chop my leg off. That's fine. (laughs) You know, that'll come into play with my second birth story. So okay. um, yeah, with Joseph, um, that was all fine, but, and I feel but like they did the Pitocin, um, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I'm curious about, cause I've heard other women talk about Pitocin, um, changing sort of like the sensation of the contractions. Did you notice that at all? Since I had an epidural? No. Oh, okay. Because oh, my, right. epidural, my epidural yeah. was lovely and I didn't feel a thing. So that was awesome. But then the epidural wore off when it came time to push. And that was just absolutely horrendous. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't notice any different sensations, but that's because I just couldn't feel anything. Right. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But um, so by 2 a.m., I was 10 centimeters dilated. And then they let me down labor for half an hour, which like once you're 10 centimeters and they just kind of let you chill to allow the baby to descend a little bit more, which is awesome. So if you ever get the option to do that, do that. Um, but then when it came time to push, this was bad. So my son's head is in like the 99th percentile. Um, and so I had to push for two and a half hours and Mm -hmm. it was just, that was just the most horrendous part because with the epidural, I couldn't really feel myself pushing. So then I let it wear off and it, it was just like the worst experience and it was horrible and he just wasn't coming out. Um, and I was pushing on my back. And again, this was before I was like really like into pelvic PT and doing all of my labor and delivery prep. Cause if you come and see me, we do a lot of labor and delivery prep and you do not have to d- deliver on your back, but I was on my back pushing the whole time. And that's probably also why it took so long. Um, mm-hmm. but then finally, so they had to use a vacuum to get him out after two and a half hours, they used vacuum. They tried it once and it popped off his head. And then they were like, we can only do this one more time. So he has to come out. I'm like, okay. But again, like nobody had ever told me if he was in distress or not. Oh, I think they said that they saw meconium at some point. So there was like that, but then the second time with the vacuum, uh, he came out. And so that was at 4 59 AM. So the whole process was only 12 hours. So it wasn't bad, but the pushing was just absolutely horrible. Um, but then he was born and when he came out though, he looked kind of limp. So my husband and I were both like, oh my God, is he okay? And they were like, yeah, he's fine. And then they took him away and they were able to clear his lungs. And then we heard him cry. So it was like, okay, good. Um, yeah. So that was his story. And I just, I only tore a little bit. I think it was like a grade one to two tear, which is good. Pelvic floor fatigue did a lot of perineal massage, a lot of breathing, like pushing prep. So that was good. I just wish that I had known a little bit more about different pushing positions at that point. But now that's something that I really educate all of my patients on. Well, but if you have an epidural, you can't move. You can lay on your side or you can sit more upright in the bed. Um, and with your hips in instead of your hips out in an externally rotated position. If you internally rotate your hips, that actually helps open the bottom of the pelvis, the pelvis outlet to allow the baby to come out. So you can move your legs. Yeah. Or you can have, like, you'd have your partner hold your leg for you or have one of the nurses hold your legs for you. And and all of this is very dependent on who is delivering your baby with the epidural, but there are, there are options. So you can lay on your side or you can still be on your back, but just like more upright in the bed. Yeah. Got it. If you don't get an epidural, then you can be in any position, hands and knees, squatting, leaning over something on the tub, like whatever feels good for you, but yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, um, you have a baby and talk, let's talk about the conception of baby number two. Baby number two. Okay. So here's the fun part. So, um, since we, they told us that we were unexplained infertility and we should be able to get pregnant on our own. Um, with my daughter, we were like, okay, we'll try naturally for a couple of months. And then if it doesn't work, we'll do IVF again in the fall. So this was like in May of 2021. And so 
Um, sure enough. So, and I, so the first month we, I was doing the ovulation predictor peeing on the sticks again. And, um, the first month we had, um, I had two days of high LH, but I hadn't peaked yet. And so we have had intercourse those two days. And then when I actually hit my peak, I was too tired. I was like, "Eh, all right, we'll just try again next month. And then sure enough, that was the month that we got pregnant, which was insane because it was the first time we tried. I thought we had, I mean, I knew that we were in the window, but I thought we had missed the actual day. So I was like, oh, it's probably not going to happen this month. But then when I took the pregnancy test, I was like, wait, what? Like I am capable of getting pregnant on my, it was just like so many emotions, like, wait, why didn't this happen the first time around? How did this happen right away this time? But that's why my kids are so close in age because I was nine months postpartum when I got pregnant again. Well, and what's so interesting to me is that, I mean, I have heard that a lot that like, after you have a baby, then it kind of like recalibrates your hormones and then you get pregnant naturally, even if you couldn't before. Right. So Anyway, because yeah. you would think like, oh, what did you change? What did your husband change? You know, like it sounds like it was nothing. Just, I yeah. just, I had just had a baby. So yeah. Um, yeah. So I was nine months postpartum when I got pregnant again, which I definitely would recommend spacing it out a little bit longer because now like in the thick of it, oh my gosh, two, they're two and a half and one. My life is a little crazy, but it's okay. Um, but, and then also from a pelvic floor PT perspective too, like maybe waiting a little bit longer because my second pregnancy was much more challenging, but maybe also because I had a toddler running around, um, but definitely more pain, more discomfort the second time around. So pain and discomfort where mostly like, like in, your sac- in my sacrum and mm-hmm. then in my thoracic spine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I, fortunately I never really had any pelvic pain, um, nothing like that, but it was mostly like sacrum and low back area. And so, so were you a pelvic PT already? At that I moment? was. Yes. So, um, when my, when I had my son, I had just like really gotten into pelvic PT. So I hadn't done like all of the labor and delivery courses and uh, like all the con ed that I've done now since then, four years later. Um, so I still like, I feel like I just, I wish I had known what I know now back then, but Mm. yeah. yeah, now I can at least help people and help all of my pregnant patients and I get such good feedback from them and they're like so excited. Like I just finished up with a pregnant person yesterday and she's like ready to push. She's ready to go. She's so excited. She feels so empowered. I'm like, this is awesome. I love this. I wish I had done this sooner, but yeah. 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 You can't know what you know. Until... It's like, you don't know what you don't know and you yeah. live, but it's, it's all good. It's all good. So yeah. So then during the pregnancy, you're having more pain and then yeah. maybe tell us about the, it sounds like you didn't go into labor now. Yeah. So no. Okay. So her, this story is bizarre. So, okay. So I was 38 weeks pregnant and it was a Thursday and I woke up in the morning with like 104 fever chills, like all of these crazy symptoms. And so we immediately went to the hospital labor and delivery. They, um, and this was in the height of Omicron. So it was January, 2021. So mm. they tested me for COVID. They tested me for the flu. They uh, tested my urine and they couldn't find anything wrong. And uh baby was fine. Her heart rate was fine. Everything was good. So they were like, go home come back on Saturday for an NST. And then, so I went home and I was taking Tylenol around the clock because I was still home and I was, the fever had gone down, but I was still like achy chills, like all these random symptoms. And then that was Thursday. Then Friday morning at like 4am, I woke up and I, again, I had 104 fever. So I was like, okay, we're going back to the hospital. Same thing. They tested me for COVID the flu. I don't think they tested my urine the second day though. And same thing though. They were like, baby's fine. You're fine. Nothing's wrong. Um, so go home and then still come back, come back Sunday for the NST. So, um, I was still taking Tylenol around the clock. Cause I, I was just like, I don't know, like what's worse, like to take Tylenol for this baby or for me to have a really high fever during this, the end of this mm-hmm. pregnancy. I just like, I had no idea. So then when I went on Sunday for the NST baby was still fine, everything was good, but I was still having the fever and I was clammy and like all of the things. And so the OB was like, we don't know where this fever is coming. And she had actually consulted with the the MFMs who, cause with my second pregnancy too, I would, I got to go see the MFM again, nothing wrong. It wasn't a high risk pregnancy, but just for those three ultrasound checks. So she had called him, Dr. Monsano and consulted with him. And they both agreed that it was time to induce because I clearly had some sort of fever, some sort of infection that they didn't know where it was coming from. And it was time to get the baby out. And so I was 38 weeks and three days. 
And so I was like, okay. And it was funny too, because that day I, I had a feeling that that was going to happen. Cause the first two times we went to the hospital, I didn't take my hospital bag with me and my husband had come with me. But then when I went on Sunday, I went alone, but I brought my hospital bag with me and they were like, we're going to induce you. And I was like, all right, well, let me call my husband and tell him to come. Um, but I had a feeling that that was going to happen though. So, um, yeah, so they induced me around noon. They inserted something into my cervix. I think it was called cervidil. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So right in your cervix. Yeah. Right in my cervix. Cause I was only like one or two centimeters dilated. Um, and they did that cause it was the slower acting one because when they were monitoring the baby, there was one point where her heart rate dropped. And because of that, they were like, we're going to do the slow acting one instead of the fast acting one, um, just in case her heart rate drops again. So I was like, okay, sure. Like whatever. So, and they're like, it's going to take 12 hours. So I was like, cool. So it's noon. So this is like, nothing's even going to happen until midnight. So I'm just going to get comfortable. But around 7 PM, um, I was just chilling in bed and then I was watching the monitor and then all of a sudden, um, her heart rate started dropping and I could just see it like plummeting almost on, and I'm all of a sudden like all the nurses rush in so scary. I'm just like, holy crap, what's happening? Like, am I going to lose my baby? Cause I'm literally watching the heart rate monitor, but then they had me get up and change positions. And then it went back up. So I was like, okay. They were like, oh, it was probably just positional. Everything's fine. She's good. I'm like, okay. But then it happened again. And so they were like, okay, she's not tolerating this. We're going to take the, the cervidil out. So they took it out. And then at that point, the OB had come in and she was like, okay, it seems like she's her heart rate is dropping when you're having contractions. And I wasn't even in full-blown labor yet. This was still just like very early. Um, and so she was like, it seems like she's not tolerating the contraction. So right now there's a 50, 50 chance that we're going to have to do a C-section because if we try labor, like when you're having full contractions, there's a chance that her heart rate will continue to drop. And like, it might be an emergency C-section. She might not tolerate it, all these things. And so she was telling this, telling us this, and she's like, I'll come back. I'll let you guys talk about it um, and like figure it out. And so she left and then she came back and we, you know, we were asking a couple more questions. Cause I was like, what does the recovery with the C-section look like? Cause I have a toddler at home and I know you can't lift when you have a C-section. Um, and then, and then she was also just talking about how it would be good to do a C-section now while it was not an emergency, because if we had waited until it became an emergency to do a C-section, then that would be just like a whole, like way more stressful, like a lot more problems. And so she was kind of, but she was still like, it's your call. But like, as she was talking to us, then Nina's heart rate dropped again. And then, so her heart rate had dropped, I don't know, maybe like three or four times over this whole process. And then at that point, the OB was like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm calling it. We're going to have to do a C-section because she's not going to tolerate labor. So it was like, okay, cool. Like, sure. So that was just like very scary all of a sudden, like what's happening. I'm freaking out. And then like, from my pelvic PT perspective, I'm like, no, I only want to have like one injury to one body part. Like I just want like vagina injury. I don't want an abdomen injury. That, that's like what's going through my mind. But then it's also like an emergency C-section would be so stressful on me. I'm already so stressed out and we just want to get the baby out. So um, yeah. So then they decided to do the C-section. And then I think like 30 minutes later, she was out, but the C-section itself was super scary for me one, because I just didn't know what to expect. And then I don't respond well to high to heavy drugs at all. So I was shaking the entire time. They had to give me an oxygen mask. And then like the thought, like, okay, they're cutting my stomach open. I'm just laying back here like this. What is happening? So that wasn't very pleasant. And then I just like was not emotionally present when she was born, but she's here and she's healthy. So it's fine. But it was just very much, they like handed her to me and I was still shaking. And I was like, I, I can't hold her right now. You have to take her. I'm going to drop her. So that was kind of scary, but, um, she's fine. She's healthy. They think they found a blood clot in my placenta. Um, I don't know that. I don't think they said that that's what was causing her heart decelerations, but they never knew where the fever came from. They don't know what was causing her heart rate to drop, but they were just kind of like, I think she's done. She wants to come out. So, okay. Well, so. Wow. That is so intense. It was very intense. It was very scary. It was just not what I was expecting. And then after like all the drugs were out of me, then I was throwing up for like 12 hours because I had eaten at 5 PM. So I didn't know that I was going to have a C-section. So um yeah so the that whole like the first 24 hours of her I was just like so dizzy and like what the heck just happened um so that was no no fun but again she is here she is healthy we did what we needed to do like I didn't want to find obviously no one's gonna say like yeah let's try and let her heart rate drop a little bit more and go into labor 
That was yeah. So, yeah. It's yeah. like things that you think, you know, you're going to know how to navigate, but then you don't in the moment. Yeah. And I know that like my OB group, they're very, like they only do C-sections if they absolutely have to, especially with the OB that did mine. I, she's not like quick to cut. So, which is a good thing. So it's like, if she wanted to do a C-section, there was a very good reason to do so. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and then it, I, again, from the pelvic PT perspective, I think it's great that I had one vaginal delivery and one C-section. So I've experienced each and I feel like that way I can really help my patients a lot more recover both ways too. So, yeah. So yeah. maybe share with us about, I'm trying to think of where to go. I, Cause I'd like for you to share more about pelvic PT and yeah. I want to also be conscious of time. So yeah. if you can maybe share Maybe it'd be helpful for like how you recommend for people to structure pelvic PT, like say, okay, like I'm pregnant. And then okay. like, when should they start? Yeah. Because I think I told you a while ago that when I was pregnant, I wanted to get pelvic PT because yeah. I had this history of pain. Right. And I was like, how the hell am I going to get a baby out of my vagina yeah. if a penis hurts me and yes. a tampon, you know, yeah, totally. but they refused or they didn't like refuse, but they said, we can't do any internal work during pregnancy. And I, yeah. I know that I was in my third trimester yeah. at so that point. Can, so yeah. it it's like first trimester. I know that a lot of people yes. are funky no. about things, but, yeah. but anyway, so yeah. I, I meant, so if you can share about like when people should yeah. start during pregnancy and then how soon after they should yeah. come in the postpartum phase yeah. and like so all the stuff that it can Absolutely. help with things like okay. that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you definitely can have internal work done in the second and third trimesters, as long as you're not on pelvic rest and you're clear to have sex, that's totally fine. But I, and I would say like most other pelvic PTs will not do any internal work in the first trimester, just for safety purposes. Not that pelvic floor PT would cause anything to happen, but just God forbid, you don't want to be associated with that. And mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, so if you are pregnant, what I recommend is making an appointment in the second trimester, just to get a baseline where you're at, um, have the pelvic floor muscles assessed to see if they're tight, to see if they're weak, see what you need to work on. Um, but with pregnancy though, we mostly work on relaxing the pelvic floor because pushing a baby out, you have to relax the pelvic floor. You're not doing a Kegel as you push the baby out. So in general, I don't, don't usually recommend Kegels during pregnancy unless something else is going on. Um, but anyway, so first or second trimester, we'll check the baseline. And then if you are having symptoms or if you have something like pelvic pain that you've experienced in the past, then I would recommend going more frequently. So like every other week, every two to three weeks throughout your pregnancy until you get to the third trimester and then you come more frequently. But if you're not having any issues and you just want to do baseline check-ins, so then it's like check-in once a month in the second trimester and then like early third trimester, just to make sure that everything is going well. And then around the 32 week mark is when I start doing labor and delivery prep. And so what that looks like is teaching you how to do perennial massage because perennial massage can help reduce the risk of tearing and then bring awareness to the pelvic floor and how to relax the pelvic floor. Um, then we talk about labor and delivery positions and um, talking about like hip rotation and how that opens the pelvic, pelvic inlet and pelvic outlet and things that you can do to try and help move the baby, um, get the baby to descend. And then I also, um, go over pushing. So doing an internal exam, I will go, we'll talk about pushing. We'll talk about breath holding versus not breath holding during breathing. Cause breathing during pushing has been shown to reduce the risk of tearing, but many hospitals, nurses require you to hold your breath. So I try what to the teach fuck? Yeah. It's like, oh, I've never heard that in my life. Yeah. That's a lot of people will tell me like the nurse made me hold my breath. And then I've also heard like, they made me be on my back. They wouldn't let me be on another person. So yeah. So th then that's where the whole, like advocate for yourself. And so my job, I'm like, let me just give you all of this information here, like educate you. Hopefully you will be able to go in and make an informed decision. And then that's where like some having a doula or somebody to help support you with your decisions. If you're in a hospital, um, Anyways. Yeah. So where was I going with that? Okay. So yeah. So pushing positions or pushing positions and pushing techniques and how to push. We talk about like what the effective way to push is. Um, and then we also go over what to expect early postpartum, like posture and how to decrease pressure on the pelvic floor, those early postpartum days. And then during your pregnancy, if you are having any kind of issues, you would come more frequently than that, but that's just kind of the roadmap. If you're not having issues and you just want to prepare for labor and delivery mm -hmm. and then postpartum, 
So I won't do any internal work until they're cleared at six weeks postpartum, but they can definitely come earlier, like two to four weeks, just to, the first thing we do is learn, relearn how to connect the core and the pelvic floor because your abs have been stretched out for nine months. You've had a lot of pressure on your pelvic floor for nine months. So you need to learn. It all starts with diaphragmatic breathing and learning how to draw the, the lower abdomen in and connecting it with the pelvic floor. So that's what we start early postpartum. And then depending on what their goals are, if they want to get back to running, if they want to get back to cycling, if they want to get back to lifting, then we start coming up with a specific exercise program, um, to help with that, a lot of core and pelvic floor strengthening. And then if they are having any issues, so you, for that, if there are no issues going on and they just want to come and get checked out, I would say like coming in once a week for about four to six weeks. But then if there are any issues, if there's leaking, if there's a prolapse, if there's a diastasis recti, then it's a lot more, it's more frequently. And then it's a longer, um, treatment or longer recovery time. So, but yeah, that's kind of like the general, hopefully that answered the question. Did I cover? Yeah, that? totally. Okay. And during pregnancy, like what are some of the symptoms that people come for? So a lot of times, um, pelvic pain, so, or, um, pubic symphysis, pubic symphysis. Wow. I can't speak diastasis. So separation of pubic bones. That's a common one. Low back pain, hip pain, um, pelvic pain, even leaking urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. Um, those are probably the big ones that I see during pregnancy. And then postpartum, I would say the most common one that I see is leaking. Um, and then I also see pelvic organ prolapse and then diastasis recti. And then I, pain with sex is actually pretty common after, after delivery also, whether you had a vaginal delivery or a C-section, you see it both ways. So those are some things I work on postpartum. Awesome. Yeah. And then also just side note, it doesn't matter how postpartum you are. It doesn't matter if your kid is five years old or if your kid is five weeks old, it's never too late to get help if you are having issues. Yeah. So I think my daughter was two and a half when I started yes. seeing you yeah. and so. I definitely have noticed a big change. Yes. So I yeah. didn't go right away and I didn't yeah. get any pelvic PT prior, um, never too late to her birth. So yeah, yeah never too late. And yeah. it's really helped a lot. So I would love for you to share about where people can find you. So on your Instagram, your website, Yes, totally. So I'm located, my office is in Westlake um, and then, or Westlake Thousand Oaks, like the border of Westlake and Thousand Oaks. Um, my website is cappuccinopt.com. So cappuccino, like the drink and then pt.com. And then my Instagram is cappuccino pelvic PT. I'm not great at Instagram, but I am trying. So. <laughs> I love the videos that I, I've seen you post. They're very helpful. Thank you. I, I'm trying. It's so hard making a reel with two kids in the background. Like I'm trying to do exercises and they're like fighting and chasing each other. I'm just like, <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. I used to be able to do that with my daughter around and now I have to wait until she's not yeah. either sleeping or at school. It's challenging, but I do. I try to post, um, informational, just educational stuff on there. Maybe like once every two to three weeks. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you again so much. And I'll be linking all of that in the show notes. So if you want to go check that out. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody that you think might benefit from hearing some of the information that was shared here today. If you're interested in finding more about me, you can find me on my website at rosebudwellness.com, on Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness, or on Facebook at the Rosebud Wellness community. Also, if you're feeling called to leave a, a rating or writing a review, that would be amazing. It really helps to get the podcast out to more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and until next time.